Here's a few things, a few statements that will hopefully uh, evoke some reactions in your mind as you respond to what I'm saying. Uh, I'm going jogging, how about you? Ever had somebody say that to you? My wife says it to me all the time, unfortunately. I'm going jogging, you want to come? <laughs> She's both an inveterate exerciser and inveterately social. So for her, there's nothing more fun than running while talking. I'm like, I'll pass. I'm good. <laughs> you go ahead. The other problem with running with my wife is she's competitive. So whenever I run with her, she wants to beat me. And she's, you've seen her, she's built like a gazelle and she can run long distance much better than I can. I'm built like a dwarf, a tall dwarf, but I'm very dangerous over short distances like Gimli, right? I'm a linebacker. I'm meant to run eight yards and knock you out. That's the kind of speed I'm good with. Running for five kilometers, I find very difficult. I'm going jogging. How about you? How about this one? I'm giving up pizza. How about you? I'll be like, no. No, no. We have pizza at least once a week in my house. Uh, usually it's like Thursday night. I've mentioned this in previous sermons. We call it pulling a hat maker. Jen Hatmaker, a famous uh, Christian writer, she talks about this. She's like, sometimes you just got to tap out and order pizza. So I often will text Nikki. I'm like, it's a hat maker kind of night, right? She's like, yeah, it is. So at least once a week we order pizza. I'm giving up pizza. How about you? If somebody told me they were giving up pizza, I'd think they had left their senses. Um, this one, I think kale is awesome. How about you? <laughs> I have a hard time with kale. Um, this last week we were in Montreal visiting Nikki's family for a couple days, and they have one of these crazy kind of community gardens where you get to grow your own vegetables, and man, we ate some really good salads, and one of those salads was a kale Caesar, and they like massaged the kale, and it actually came out of the ground moments before it got massaged, and this was actually like the first time in my life I actually loved kale, but until then, if someone said to me, kale is awesome, how about you? I'd be like, nah, not really. Here's one. I quit watering my lawn five years ago for humanitarian and environmental reasons. How about you? I mean, Todd, that doesn't sound like you. True story. Five years ago, I finally came to the point where I realized that um, watering my lawn is probably not a good thing for my environmental reasons and humanitarian ones, so I quit. I don't water regularly anymore. How about you? If you're like, oh, you might be like, yeah, finally, what took you so long? Or you might be like, you're crazy. Your lawn must look like scratch. How about this one? I think chocolate milk is from Jesus. How about you? I don't drink it anymore. I quit drinking milk um, last year. You're thinking, you've quit everything. You're eating kale, not drinking chocolate milk, not watering your lawn. I, I'm pastoring a church in Guelph. It's difficult, right? I'm like turning into an environmentalist hippie. It's crazy. Uh, I know I don't look like it or sound like it, but it's happening to me in small measure. So I still think chocolate milk is from Jesus, even though I don't drink it. Here it is. Um, here's the reason I use these examples for you. Decisions um, are polarizing. Why? Because they have implications. Right? When somebody says, I've quit watering my lawn for environmental reasons, how about you? Don't you instantly feel judged? Right? Okay, so that decision that I've made has, is polarizing because it has implications. Okay, that's why we often don't make decisions, because we know that they're polarizing. Or if we've made the decision, we're kind of quiet about it. Like if I was a card-carrying member of the Green Party, I wouldn't necessarily tell you because it's polarizing. You'd be like, I got to leave this church. Our pastor is a card-carrying member of the Green Party. Right? A decision is polarizing because it has implications, which is why we, one, don't make decisions, and two, if we make them, we don't talk about them. So how about this doozy of a decision? God is my king. How about you? That's the one that really matters. God is my king. How about you? Now, if you said that to somebody in the real world, God is my king, how about you? Chances are they'd want to ask you about the implications before they made the decision. Well, if I make God my king, what will the implications be? Do you know somebody like this? You know that your friends would think this way. Okay, well, it sounds maybe kind of interesting. 
Maybe they've tried a bunch of things in their life that haven't worked out so far. They're like, hmm, okay, maybe I'll try this God thing. But what are the implications? Can I get a sense of the implications first? Well, some of them are found for us today in Psalm 145. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. A song of praise. King David wrote this. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. All your works, notice all the all, 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 all your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and Tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful again in all his works and kind in all his words. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you. You give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Notice all the alls in there. The first thing I did when I started wrestling with this text on Tuesday was highlight all the alls. I used a yellow highlighter and I highlighted all of them because I'm like, this is a pretty imperative song. You wouldn't say all that many times unless you meant it. Okay, so receive it this morning as a pretty imperative psalm meant to speak into your life with authority. We find here in Psalm 145, 15 implications of his kingness. That's what we're looking for. If you're taking notes, you're going to have 15 entries today. 15 implications of God's kingness. Implication number one. We're talking about my God here. Here's the implication. Make your decision. Where does this come from? Verse 1, I will extol you, my God and my king. God is my king. Where are you at? God is my king. Where are you at? This question, okay, is what makes Christians so annoying, right? Even if you're not trying to be annoying, most people find you annoying. Why? Your allegiance to Jesus is annoying. Why? Because your allegiance to Jesus questions where their allegiance lies, And most people don't want to be bothered with considering whether there is a God at the root of the cosmos. Because if there is a God at the root of the cosmos, it means that God is not them. And most of the people you know have been living their lives as if they are on the throne. And so when they bump into somebody who bows the knee in allegiance to someone else, they find that immensely troubling, which is why you are so annoying to so many people. The faith of an authentic Christian condemns the world, just like Noah's faith condemned the world, as recorded in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. Your belief highlights other people's unbelief. 
And that is why you find yourselves at times feeling very uneasy in the midst of an unbelieving world. So here's the question for you this morning. Will you allow his kingness to continue to cause you to stick out like a sore thumb? You ever gotten to the point where you want to tap out? You're like, I'm tired of sticking out like a sore thumb. I'd like to be just like everybody else. You ever felt that way? I feel like that way a lot. Okay, where I realize that my, how my allegiance to Jesus is going to put me at odds with people. Not if, but how. Unless, of course, I don't talk about it or I don't show it forth in my actions. Will you continue to allow your allegiance to Jesus to make you stick out like a sore thumb? And continue is definitely the operative word here because, implication number two, we ain't never going to stop blessing him. This is our full-time preoccupation. Verse 1, part B. And we will bless your name forever and ever. La olam ve'ad in the Hebrew. Whenever you want to say something with a superlative, you say in Hebrew, la olam. Okay, my wife was here in first service. I said, I will love you forever. In the Hebrew, we would say, ani ohev otach la olam. To the world. I will love you to the world. David is here saying, I will bless the Lord to the world. And then just to make sure everybody gets it, and forever. La olam ve'ad. I will bless him forever, ever. Forever, ever? Yes, I will bless him forever. How many of you got that reference? Like six of us. Okay, good. Congregation's getting younger. All right, good stuff. Okay, here's the question. Can you honestly say blessing the Lord is your full-time preoccupation? And note the word preoccupation, before your occupation. Is your fixation on blessing Jesus more important to you practically than your job? And, of course, you figure out where your priorities lie by looking at your calendar. When you look at your calendar, you know where your God is. Is blessing the Lord, is worshiping Jesus your preoccupation, and not only that, is it a full-time preoccupation? Because this is a clear implication of his kingness, meaning, implication number three, is blessing and praising the Lord your life plan? Is it your daily routine? Do you bless him at all times? Is the praise of the Lord ever on your lips? Now, I know this is a tall order, but I want to invite you to grow into this place of joy. I want to invite you to grow into the place where in every small moment you find yourself pouring out the praises of God. Thanking, like this week, I was thanking him for my 11-year-old car, which I still love. It's my dream car. It's the one car I only wanted to own from teenagehood on up. And every time I see it, I bless his name. And I was thanking him for the car and for the fact that I could afford to put gas in it and that I could drive to the supermarket to buy corn on the cob to make a nice barbecue for my children. That is the depths to which at this point in my journey, the praises of God are constantly bubbling up in my life. And it's not because I'm good, but it's because I've been following him since I was 11. And so slowly at age 45, it's starting to get through my thick skull that I need to praise him at all times. And in all things, I need to bless his name. Is the blessing of God your continuous practice? Verse 2, every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Do you do this every day as a matter of course? Think of the things you do every day without thinking. You wake up, you go to the bathroom, you shower, unless you're a filthy animal, right? Just kidding. It's okay not to shower every day. I know that it messes with your hair. You shower regularly, you brush your teeth. You go downstairs and you have breakfast. I've been married to a woman for 23 years. I know that like the hair thing is a real thing. But you do these things every day without thinking. They are part of your continuous practice. Famous quote, maybe you heard this for the first time in high school. We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. 
This was always attributed to Aristotle. Aristotle never said this. The first person who said this was the philosopher Will Durant, who synthesizing Aristotle in 1926 said this for the first time. I'll say it again. We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act, but it is a habit. Is your love of Jesus the keystone habit that drives your days? Maybe you are not aware of the term keystone habit or you're hearing it today for the first time. This habit comes out of Charles Duhigg's book, The Power of Habit, which is a phenomenal book. If you go to your bookstore, it's yellow with red lettering, The Power of Habit, or order it online. It will change your life. It literally changed my life the first time I read it 10 years ago. Charles Duhigg speaks of these keystone habits, and a keystone habit is a central habit that has a cascading, catalytic effect on many other habits in your life. And this is what the habitual love of Jesus is meant to be. The habitual love of Jesus that eventually you participate in without thinking is meant to be the keystone habit of all keystone habits. It is meant to be the habit that catalytically, cascadingly drives your days. But you may think on this and wait, wait, wait a second, Todd. If I focus on Jesus as the apex of my life, won't that mean limiting it? So many people object to Christianity for this reason. They think that pledging their allegiance to Jesus and living that allegiance out in a real way will eliminate them from having all sorts of fun in the world. Well, I won't be able to do this, and I won't be able to do that, and what about this, and I probably shouldn't do that anymore. And, I'm not, and if you have forgotten that this is what many people think when they are wrestling with coming to Jesus, remember that that's one of the key reasons your friends are not coming to Jesus. is because they are afraid, and rightly so, that in pledging their allegiance to Jesus, this will mean that they can no longer bow the knee to other things. But let me tell you something about Jesus in case you're worrying about limiting yourself. Point number four here, the fourth implication of his kingness is that he is so great you will never exhaust him. If you get to the moment where you feel like your love of Jesus is going to limit you, lift your eyes to the heavens and consider the stars. Think on the cosmos and on he who framed the worlds and remind yourself again that he is more than big enough to be worthy of everything you have to give. You will never exhaust him. So stop worrying about 100% comprehension. Stop worrying about whether or not he's big enough for you. And instead, look upon his glory in creation and cause it to worship him. Let it cause you to worship him. Let worship be born in your heart as you see God at work in the world around you. He is more than big enough. Verse 3 testifies to this. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. You know what this says in the Hebrew? His greatness is unsearchable. Legdolato en cheker. So in the Hebrew, it's like this. Legdolato, literally to his bigness. En, there isn't cheker. There isn't searching. Legdolato en cheker. To his bigness, there is no searching. You will never exhaust him. So stop worrying about limits and just worship him. And implication number five. Get it into your soul and someday pass it on to your kids that this God we worship is no soft and cuddly God, but he is the mighty man God. Now before you disqualify me for saying something that sounds sexist, stay with me through the text. Verse 4, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Here in the Hebrew, mighty acts is givor norah. They shall declare your givor, norah, mighty acts. In fact, norah is the word for fearsome or fearful. So they shall declare your fearful acts. But the word givor comes from the root gever, which means man. 
Okay, so man is gever, givor means manly acts. In fact, your manly terrifyingness. One generation shall proclaim your manly terrifyingness to the next generation. Now, before all of you ladies disqualify yourselves, may I remind you that women and men are made in the image of God. And both women and men image God in his manly terrifyingness here. If you don't believe me, just watch a mother throw herself in front of her child to save her from being hit by the car. If you don't believe me, watch a father next time he fights to the death to protect his child from harm. Both the woman and the man are imaging God as they do this because he made them to be like him in his terrifying manly man acts. Here's the point. Don't mess with him. Okay, don't mess with him. In the words of C.S. Lewis, in mortal words, he is not a tame lion. And I'm sure that many of you listening to me are thinking, even now, God, I have been guilty of thinking as you as somewhat less than you are. I have not acted like you are terrifying in your greatness. I have taken you too lightly. I have acted casually towards you. Please forgive me. Friends, if you want to teach yourself and your kids a theology of righteousness in the midst of a sinful world, teach them to fear the Lord. And to teach someone to fear the Lord, you have to preach the right Lord to them. You have to proclaim the correct Jesus to them. You have to remind them all the time that this is not a God to be trifled with. He is the God who commits terrifying acts in his manliness. That is the God we worship. And you women and you men are made in his image and likeness to be like him. Do not mess with him. And in fact, number six, keep him and his majesty and his wondrous, miraculous works as your key fixation. We see this in verse five. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. Let's unpack the word meditate. What does it mean to meditate on God's wondrous works? To meditate, to engage in contemplation or reflection. Meditate, to focus one's thoughts on. Meditate, to plan or project in the mind. Think of what it might take for you on an ongoing basis to project an image of the greatness of God in your mind in such a way that it absolutely transforms the way in which you live. I'm willing to bet that most of us spend much of our time meditating on many things besides our beautiful Jesus. Can someone say touche? You know? Are you one of those many who spend most of your time meditating on things besides your beautiful Jesus? Maybe it's time you got your mind right. And a big part of getting your mind right is connecting it to remembering who does what. Verse 6, they shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. And I will declare your greatness. So point number seven, keep in mind that he does the fearsome work. We just talk about it. I'll say it again. He's the one who does the fearsome work. We just talk about it. What is fearsome? Awesome in the Hebrew, noratecha. Literally, norah is like horrible, frightening, terrifying. Okay, he does that awesomely terrifying work. Literally, your awfulness. Okay, we will speak about his awesomeness. God is awfully godlike. That's why I'm not afraid to speak of him as awful. He's awfully godlike. Okay, he is awfully godlike. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Let him do the work. You talk it up. And implication number eight, don't just talk about it. Spin around on it. This is one of my favorite teachings out of 
David's Psalms. Spin around, verse 7, they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. And sing aloud in the Hebrew here is leganen, and it's my favorite. You know I'm a bit of an exuberant creature, and it's biblical to be exuberant because leganen means to spin around and to leap and to shout with joy. And so there's got to be a lot more leaping and a lot more shouting and a lot more singing real loud in God's church because we are full of the joy of the Lord. In fact, we are full of joy, unexpressible and full of glory. Don't just talk about it. Do some spinning around on it. Do some whooping and some hollering for joy. Why is it that Jesus makes us so happy? Because he has all the goodness you will ever need, and he always does the right thing. How do I know he has all the goodness we'll ever need? Because we shall pour forth the fame of your what? of your abundant goodness, meaning all the goodness we'll ever need. And we shall sing aloud of his what? Of his righteousness. What does righteous mean? It means to do the right thing in any given situation. I believe that the only difficulty we have in the praise department is because we have lost sight of two things. One, our neediness. Two, the goodness of God. We forget that we're needy. And so we act like we're not, even though we are desperately in the core of who we are as human beings. We have a need for a relationship with God, but we pretend that we don't, and we ignore it, and we try to fill it with other things, and we ultimately find that those other things do not satisfy. And we forget our need, and then we forget the source of all need. We forget that God is good, and he is the answer to all our questions. And the end result of forgetting these two things leads to spiritual bankruptcy. It is only those who have been forgiven much, who love much. Paraphrasing here, Luke 7 through 47. And maybe you're listening to me and you're thinking, whoa, I have been really guilty of this. I have forgotten to love much because I have forgotten how much I have been forgiven of. It's my joy to tell you this morning that there is always time to repent. In fact, point number nine, the only reason we're still here is because he's patient and he's a mercy gardener. This is my favorite point in the whole sermon. It comes out of verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Literally here, abounding in steadfast love in the Hebrew, vegadal chesed. Vegadal chesed. Chesed is the word for grace or mercy. Vegadal literally means to big up or to grow up. He literally grows up mercy. And I thought immediately about the garden that gave me my beautiful kale salad this week. And I realized that if God grows up mercy, and if it's true as Lamentations 3 says, that his mercies are new every morning. And if it's true as 1 John 1, 7 says, that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus keeps on cleansing us from all our sins, then he is a mercy gardener. It is not a one-time abstraction, but he grows mercy in the garden of God that he then gives to you in each and every moment. Friend, he is a mercy gardener, and he is growing that mercy for you because you need it. You will never outgrow his mercy. Never. Take that one to the bank and change your life with it. You will never outgrow his mercy. In fact, implication number 10, he's so merciful that even if they don't recognize or admit it, everyone is living in God's mercy. I love this. This is incendiary. Every time I get to preach something incendiary, it's the best day of my life. Verse 9, the Lord is, listen for the all. The Lord is good to all. I'm going to shout it so you don't miss it. And his mercy is over all that he has made. 
Did y'all hear the alls there? The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. In the Hebrew here, this is awesome. His mercy is al kol ma'asav. His chesed, his mercy, is al, on, kol, all, ma'asav. The things that he does, except the word la'asot is the most common word for doing that exists in the Hebrew language. His mercy is on everything he does, and it's easy for him to do it. Showing mercy is easy work for God. You and your problems are no problem for him. Put that on a t-shirt and apply it to your friends' lives. The problems your friends are dealing with are no problem for God. I mean, somebody shout! Your problems are no problem for him. His mercy is on you, and you are living in it. You are living in the mercy of God. Didn't we sing something that proclaimed that exact same thing? Yes, and we didn't plan it. So, implication number 11, we live like saints, knowing who the real source is and being constantly grateful for it and talking about his glory nonstop. We see this outline in verses 10 through 12. All, again, all your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your Kingdom, all means all. Notice what they're doing. They shall speak and tell to make known. Friend, you and no one else are God's ambassadors. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God himself were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Quoting 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. We proclaim the goodness of God to a world that has forgotten what goodness is. To be a saint means to receive and transmit the goodness of God. Don't miss it. To receive and transmit the goodness of God. If you're just receiving and not transmitting, you're not a saint. Saints receive and transmit the goodness of God, and the only people who really go all out on this are the people who, implication number 12, understand that his kingdom is both an everlasting one and an enduring one, which is why it's worth going on and on about. We see this everlastingness and this enduringness outlined in verse 13. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So here's where I get that from. Everlasting here in the Hebrew speaks to cosmically. It's so everlasting, it's going to last beyond the cosmos. It existed before the cosmos. It will exist forever and ever 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 and ever. His kingdom is everlasting. It is cosmic, but it is also enduring. Why? <clears throat> because the word dominion means government in the Hebrew. And what is more earthy than government? Nothing is more earthy than government. They take your money and they use it to what? To build a life for you and your kids. There is nothing more earthy than the government. It's involved in every aspect of our lives at the national level, the provincial level, the municipal level. The rules of our nation govern us on a daily basis. They are as connected to us as breathing itself. And that is a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God, which is why, by the way, God tells us to submit to the government because even the government images him in his godness. His kingdom is everlasting, it's cosmic, and it's enduring. It's like the government, and it will last throughout all generations. The kingdom of God, friends, is not pie in the sky. In fact, it's as down-to-earth as apple pie. That's how down-to-earth the kingdom of God is. It's then and there, and it's here and now. And point number 13, I'm almost done, 13. Its king is pretty amazing, as you would expect. 
from a kingdom that would endure throughout all generations, that would have to have a pretty awesome king. Let me tell you about this awesome king, paraphrasing verses 13 through 20. He is, your king is faithful and kind. Woo! He upholds the falling and raises those who are bowed down. Hallelujah. You preach this in a church in Atlanta. People are dancing at this point. He gives food and opens his hand to satisfy our desires. He's righteous and kind. He is near. He fulfills your desire and hears your cry and saves and prospers all who love him. He will also exterminate the wicked. I love to preach that one, and I preach it with no fear in my heart and no apology on my lips. And you're thinking, how could a good God exterminate anyone? Let me tell you how a good God could exterminate the wicked. Because they're wicked. That's why. The wicked get exterminated because they are wicked. And God has declared that eternity is going to be a pretty nice place, which is why I read to you from Revelation 21 off the top. He has declared that eternity will be a place with no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, and no more pain. And last time I checked, it's wickedness and wicked people that cause those things. And you just saw it proved last night in El Paso and Dayton, Ohio. In God's eternal kingdom, there will be no more wickedness and nobody gets to hide jack God's eternity. So the wicked will perish at his hand. And the only people who need to worry about extermination are the wicked. And they're wicked because they will not bow the knee to the one true king, but they would rather rule and reign themselves. Don't get it twisted so that they can put you under their feet. So last time I checked, I celebrate the fact that my good God, King and Savior, will crush not just the serpent's head, but anyone who bows the knee to that snake. Wickedness will not last because the Christ has come. You should say amen to that. Because of Jesus, wickedness will not last. How do I know as I close? Ladies, you can join me because we're about to worship Jesus in this joint. Verse 19, he also hears their cry and saves them. Hear it in the Hebrew and watch for the word that makes me a preacher. And their holocaust he will hear. Imagine reading this as a Jew. And their holocaust he will hear. He hears their cry. And he will save them. The word for save, yasha. The Yeshayam, he will save them, from which we get the word of our great God, King and Savior, Yeshua HaMashiach, my Jesus, your Jesus, the one who saves, and their implorings he will hear, and he will Jesus them. Friend, Jesus has heard you, and Jesus has entered into your pain, and Jesus will save you from the consequences of your wrong actions, and Jesus will preserve you for his kingdom which is coming, because that good Jesus, who was God the Son made flesh, went to a Roman cross where he hung and bore the penalty for your sin and mine. As he hung there, God the Father laid upon him the iniquities of us all, and he suffered and died in your place for your sin. But because he was God, he did not stay dead, but he, oh, I can preach it. He arose again the third day, triumphing in his body over the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell forever. And then in front of his friends, he ascended back to his father's right hand where he sat down in victory, where he does one thing forevermore. He cheers for you. He intercedes for you. He's up there going, go for it. You can do it. Don't give up. And if you ever wonder why Jesus had to shout so much, it's because he's training his voice for that last great and glorious moment when he returns again with the archangel's shout to say, Hine, 
אני עושה הכל חדש, behold, I make all things new, and he's going to blow the shofar, so he's got very highly developed resurrection lungs, because he's making a fuss when he comes back to turn all things right, to inaugurate his kingdom, which will have no end. A kingdom in which he has prepared a place for you, that's your Jesus, that's what he's done, he has heard you, he became the God-man Jesus to save you. So, implication 14, as for me and my house, verse 21, my mouth will speak the praises of the Lord. And verse 21b, my hope is that all flesh will bless his name forever and ever. And this is so inclusive that it includes you. How do I know? Vayivrach kol bashar shem kadosho la'olam ve'ad. Literally, the word bashar, vayivrach kol bashar, and will bless all meat. Bashar is the word for meat. Vayivrach kol meat. Shem kadosho, his holy name, forever and ever, and all meat will bless him. Humor me. Squeeze your forearm. Everybody, squeeze your forearm. Are you meat? Yes! Filled with the breath of God. You qualify. Woo! You qualify because all meat will bless his name. So, I don't know about you, but I'm going to bless the mercy gardener. Oh, wait. Implication 15. How about you? <laughs> 